Hi everyone, welcome to Crime Science. In this podcast, we aim to explore the science of crime and the practical application of the science for loss prevention and asset protection practitioners as well as other professionals. Co-hosts Dr. Reed Hayes of the Loss Prevention Research Council and Tom Meehan of Control Tech discuss a wide range of topics with industry experts, thought leaders, solution providers, and many more. In this week's episode, Tom O'Riggy joins us for a discussion on asset protection, including working with the LPRC and LPRC Innovate program, evidence-based safety and security, the greatest challenges in AP, what the future holds, and much more. At the time of recording, Tom was with Walmart but has now transitioned into a new role with Kroger. We would like to thank Bosch for making this episode possible. Take advantage of the advanced video capabilities offered by Bosch to help reduce your shrink risk. Integrate video recordings with point-of-sale data for visual verification of transactions and exception reporting. Use video analytics for immediate notification of important AP-related events, and leverage analytics metadata for fast forensic searches for evidence and to improve merchandising and operations. Learn more about extending your video system beyond simple surveillance in Zones 1-4 through of LPRC's Zones of Influence by visiting Bosch online at BoschSecurity.com. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Crime Science Podcast uh, by LPRC and the University of Florida. Um, And today, of course, I'm joined by my colleague, co-host Tom Meehan from uh, Control Tech, longtime practitioner um, in the industry. Um, And we're both excited to be joined today by Tom Riggi. And he is uh, uh, one of the top people at Walmart uh, U.S. as far as asset protection, what they're doing, uh, including in the safety realm. Um, but looking at safety and security in particular, but with a long track record um, as far as being actually in addition to a short a stint as an operator, store operator, but um, in that realm, but also in the asset protection LP field. So, Tom, welcome to Crime Science today. Thanks, Reed. Thanks, Tom. All right. So we'll jump right into it. And and um, how did you get into AP LP field uh Tom, and what's, what were some of the organizations, areas in the U.S. where you worked? Well, you know, when I was, uh, I was about 19 years old, uh, I was majoring in criminal justice. I had an idea that um, I really wanted to go into law enforcement. And in order to help pay the bills, um, and, I, and what I thought would be good practical experience, um, I got a job in what was called security back then. Um, I, I, really, I really walked Oak Brook Mall in Illinois, started to apply uh, in Took a job really with two retailers, uh, Saks Fifth Avenue and also Sears uh, Roebuck at the time. But I really knew within a few days um, working in those organizations that I really, really enjoyed retail security, now known as either LP or AP. Uh, I was really hooked pretty quickly. Um, and so working at Sears, I spent um, the majority of my career over at, uh, at Sears. I um, spent about eight years there. Um, and in that time, I started out, like I said, just working part-time while I was going to school, really shoplifting and working some investigations. When I left 28 years later, uh, I was the Divisional Vice President of Loss Prevention, and during that time frame, I had an opportunity to cover most of the United States, well, actually all of the United States, Puerto Rico and Guam, um, and just had a ball learning the business. I think you mentioned in your opening read that uh, I had a little bit of operational experience as well. Uh, that was a great thing about working at Sears during that time frame. Uh, lots of opportunities. I got an opportunity to run a store for a couple of years in Indianapolis, Indiana. Um, I got to uh, 
district operations manager, which, which was kind of a new gig when uh, when they developed that and did that for a couple of years out in Phoenix. So really, uh, really enjoyed uh, the time there. Um, you know, working in the home office, I was starting to get concerned and, and all transparency and candor about the business. And uh, I heard about an opportunity with a company called National Schools. They were looking for a senior vice president of loss prevention. And that was, that was really a lot of fun. I really loved that role because um, it, was, it was very rewarding to kind of rethink how the AP department worked there and how it needed to function and how we needed to make a, an impact. Really, the owner was looking to start from scratch. So uh, we built a strong team. We invested in new technology. We partnered with some great solution providers, and at the end of the day, some pretty dramatic results. And really, I didn't at the time. I, I was just we were just starting to uh, have fun. But about years into it, um, I got a phone call. Uh, um, the call was an opportunity to work for Walmart. And you know, when the world's largest retailer calls you and says, you know, we want to see if you're a fit for our team, you listen. Um, and so now I've been over at Walmart here for about five and a half years. Um, and I've had a number of different roles here, but currently responsible for um, safety and security. So let's talk a little bit about that, Tom. Um, uh, your role in safety and security, and what do you, what are your objectives there in shaping the environment and the experience for everybody? Um, what kind of drives you? What's your, what are some of your objectives and process there around safety and security? Well, my team's uh, responsible role for um, safety and compliance. Uh, that's one space we deal in. Uh, physical security is another area that, uh, that we spend time in. Uh, event management um, is an area of uh, our team's focus. And last but not least, clean operations, which really I, I took responsibility for a little over a year ago. Um, the theory being a clean store is a safer store. Uh, and how to keep store, store floors looking, I thought I would. Um, but you know, obviously, the major part of that, though, Reed, is how do you how do you keep a store um, safe, and and not just the store, but the property in general. So the majority of our team's focus is on just that, keeping our associates and their customers safe. You know, it's an interesting comment on um, it's an interesting comment on more than you ever thought you would need to know on floral wax, but you know, it sounds like obviously accidents. Um, workplace injuries and things like that are, are important and critical. How, how do retailers typically look at that or how are they looking at that issue, that, that uh, problem today and going forward? I mean, we know it's important. What all does it affect? How does it affect the retailing business, the people, and your success? Well, when I think about asset protection, you know, there's the, our two most valuable assets are our associates and our customers. If you think about them, if you think about it, without them, we really don't have much of a business model. Um, we focus on uh, providing a safer place for our associates to work and a safer place for our customers to shop. And you know, we develop this total safety mindset that I think is different from most traditional safety teams who have a focus on accident prevention and crime management. You know, I, be I believe, in fact, we believe that really doesn't matter if it's a slip and fall or a purse snatch or safe condition. It's up to us to continually work um, to make Walmart a safer place. Um, back in the day when I was growing up, 
the store manager used to tell me that sin in retailing was to have an out of stock. You can't let your customer come in and an item. And although that's really, really still important, and we do a lot of work to make sure that we're, we're in stock for our customers, the reality is that the real cardinal sin customers get hurt. We're having one of your associates get hurt. So, so to me, um, that is the primary focus, and it, it has a big impact on our over, overall success. You know, today, Reed, our customers have more choices than ever. I believe if they don't feel safe, they won't shop in our store. Now, the good news is Walmart has a very robust online business, as you know, and that's great. And if you haven't tried grocery pickup, you're missing out. The reality is the most profitable sale, profitable sale is the sale that takes place in the store. We need customers to choose our dot-com option because they want to, not really because they feel they need to due to security concerns. And that's a key aspect for us to successfully harness our digital and physical capabilities. And really, it's the same for our associates. We want them to focus on taking care of the customer's needs. And we believe our associates deserve and really expect a safe working environment. So at the end of the day, I guess to answer your question, it's it's all about establishing, enhancing, and maintaining trust, making trust a competitive advantage, if that makes sense. When your two most important assets know they can trust you and they see the things that you're doing to help make Walmart a safer place to work, it strengthens our brand as an employer of place. And when your customers see Feel the things that you're doing to make a safer place to shop. It not only strengthens our brand, but brand, but it elevates the role we play within our community. And so, when you step back, start to connect all the dots, you start to understand how important the work we do is to overall organization success, to make sure our customers uh, building when they want to be, and have the options they need uh, when they want to go shopping and that our associates don't have to really worry about anything other than taking care of the customer, making sure we have a great customer experience. Okay, well, that's great perspective. Um, you know, let me go over, Tom, to you. Um, what do you think about some questions, comments for Tom? I know you've got experience in the asset protection LP world, uh, much more recent, uh, including uh, interfacing with the safety and security, making sure that the shoppers, that the customers, associates, feel safe and secure at all times. What, what are some of your your thoughts and perspectives? Yeah, I mean, before I jump into some questions, Tom, I just have a, a general question. Because of the size of Walmart, could you just give the listeners an overview of the asset protection structure and the setup of, of the folks that work there in asset protection? Yeah, sure, Tom. I would say we have what I would consider a pretty traditional org chart. The AP team at Walmart is, reports up to our central operations team. Um, our vice president, Joe Schrouder, reports into the executive vice president of central operations. Joe has a group of directors that report to him. Uh, besides me, there's Gary Smith, who manages our AP operations team. Um, Kristen, who has the responsibility for our field team, she's recently promoted, so congratulations to her. But um, um, enormous responsibility. has a divisional team that reports directly to her time. And then from there, it's pretty, um, like I said, pretty traditional. We have regionals. Um, the regional team has market asset protection managers report to them. And then we have, in the majority of our stores, 
uh, we have teams as well. So all funnels up that way, ultimately through Joe uh, Shrouder, our vice president. Tom, can you explain to the listeners of how you deal with some of the different challenges related to the demographic location of your stores and the different culture in the markets? How, how do you handle that? Do you, do you have, I, I'm sure there's not a one-size-fits-all approach, but from a safety initiative standpoint, what are some of the things you're doing to deal with that? I think that's a great question, Tom, because, you know, the tendency in any business is to paint with a broad brush and, and anticipate that a policy or a will work 100% in all stores. And we all know the reality behind that um, is, is not exactly, uh, it's not an exact, some of it's you know, when it comes to challenges, I, there's two things I think that come to mind, Tom. We have cities where the local law enforcement agency is struggling from a staffing standpoint, and and that puts pressure on their ability to respond to what's prevalent lately called nonviolent like shoplifting cases. You know, we depend on our local LP team to work through these types of difficulties city by city basis. You know, we've a law enforcement outreach program, Tom, where our field leaders meet with local law enforcement on a quarterly basis to really share share data, exchange ideas, look for solutions that are specific to that store and the stores that are. A few years back, I I learned firsthand just really how beneficial it is to sit down with the leadership team of the police department or law enforcement agency and explore the things that we're working on and the things that we're seeing and developing that partnership. Because a lot of times, the local police, the local, in, in the local store, the, the law enforcement officers that are showing up and the sergeants, they have a good idea of what we're doing. We've, and we've got working relationships with them. It's not always that that information funnels up to the or the senior command staff. So getting an opportunity to sit down and, and talk with the leadership team on a quarterly basis, I think, makes, um, makes for a lot less surprises. It's, it provides a lot of clarity. It enhances partnerships, and, and we see that as a key aspect of our partnership with uh, local uh, law enforcement. Something that I can't do, or the team here at the home office can't do, uh, it has to be done at the local level. I, I'd say the second would be in some cities, the local prosecutor's office has decided to not prosecute since it's perceived as a nonviolent crime. You know, and it's bad enough when you think about felony thresholds going up, continue to go up, but declaring publicly that you won't do shoplifting, and that's, that's a slippery slope, I think. Um, and I think it'll have serious consequences long And really, small businesses, I think, are going to bear the brunt of these decisions, as eating those could mean the difference between staying in business or not. You know, additionally, and Reed, um, you know, this is what you've told me over the years I've known you, that most criminologists, I think, believe shoplifting is a crime, meaning that if, if I get away with shoplifting, career criminal will progress into more serious crimes, and that's not good for the community we serve. Local prosecutors, I believe, should be looking for ways to identify these offenders early and intervene, provide some ed- education, and hopefully put them on a better path before that criminal activity escalates. And finally, Tom and Reed, if what you've always taught me is that a big part of our current strategies rely on consequences. And decriminalizing shoplifting, I think, serves to motivate the shoplifter. 
uh, that changes the risk or decision-making process. So you can imagine having 4,700 stores, Tom, um, diverse. We've got uh, diverse community relationships, diverse community issues that uh, we try to partner in and neighbors in the community. Um, but at the end of the day, really massive investment in people in the, in the field versus because we need the local leadership on the ground helping to, to make the right decisions, to be good partners with our first responders and our law enforcement partners, and to be great neighbors to the customers we serve within the community. Yeah, and I think some of the dis- some of the discussions, I'm sorry, yeah, discussions, Tom, are, are around uh, the deterrence um, and then the sanctioning that comes from uh, presumably after somebody's detected and, and possibly detained um, and what's that look like. And we all know if there are just not even speed bumps, we're probably going to have more frequent and then increasingly serious uh, issues, in this case with theft, with shoplifting, shop theft. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of discussion around and potential research that we need around all right, there are formal and informal sanctions. The the most uh, critical or serious formal sanctions normally, okay, law enforcement arrest you, uh, normally physically, sometimes it's a nose-to-peer ticket. Um, you are then processed and then presumably some sort of uh, detainment, maybe even incarceration and, and probably fines that will come. That That formal sanctioning process is going to make it you know, so inconvenient, so threatening, uh, so costly in certain ways that you're not probably going to reoffend, and you might even discuss it with others, and and we get some more general deterrence out there in addition to your specific deterrence. But uh, in that light, you're talking about where wait a minute, a lot of that formal sanctioning, officials' formal sanction, seems to be deteriorating, <clears throat> waning, or maybe it's temporary, maybe it's permanent. Uh, what other formal informal sanctions are out there? Informal would include somebody's embarrassed or, or feels shame, and so they don't reoffend. Um, others, they just internally feel guilty, so they don't reoffend. But um, there's a lot of discussion. What can we do on our own or as a retail community um, with and without law enforcement, if need be, or the criminal justice system to provide some speed bumps, at least, to slow this down? Um, so I'm sorry, I'll go to Tom Meehan. Tom, I know you had some further comments and questions, follow-ups for uh, Mr. Riggi. Something just that came to mind when you were speaking about that, and it really directly relates to the, that answer. Thank you. I, I can't imagine the, the, the depth of stores and how different it must be. So, Tom, how do you deal with the, the fact that everybody's got a, a smartphone with a high-definition camera on it and can take a video and live stream it and uh, really post it anywhere today, what are some of the awareness and education things you're doing, both from a safety side of it and from an apprehension side? I think that's a great question as well. And look, at the end of the day, um, two things come to mind when I think about that, Tom. Number one, um, are we hiring the right person for the job? And number two, are we, are we providing training? And, and obviously, we put a lot of emphasis on both. And from a training standpoint, um, you know, there are a lot of different ways uh, that we work to train our associates to make sure they understand and have an awareness level of, of either threats or, or going on in the store. I think the most important thing is, is to make sure that every, everybody understands and has been trained on your policy and procedure and then follow. 
Now, now the reality is we are still all human beings. And so, you know, sometimes um, that doesn't happen. Sometimes the policies don't get followed exactly um, the way they were written or the way they were being trained. Um, but I, I think the way you get comfortable around everybody having a phone is to always have the right intention and to make sure that your associates are trained on that. This this is a people business. It, it always has been, and I think it will be. And so, you know, if, if there's an if there's a customer that's upset, um, we have provided de-escalation training so that we don't add or compound that problem. Staffing um, policies are very robust, and that's probably all I'll say about them. But um, they're designed to make sure that we take an important asset. Customer and our associate put that first before any merchandise. I think if you believe in in the programs that you have and your ability to train on those programs, let them let them record. You're not going to stop it anyway. Uh, you're not going to stop that recording. So I will get comfortable with it and know the the ones that go well. well no one will notice that. Um, so it's only the ones that can go sideways um, that end up being posted on social media, it seems like. It would be good to see some of those good ones every once in a while. Yeah, I mean, if, if anybody who's listening to the podcast could take that, I would tell you that's probably the best piece of advice right there is just to, to drive that everybody has good intentions. And I mean, that's a phenomenal answer. And um, I know it's a number one thing that comes up when I talk to people because uh, I talk so much about social media and technology. And um, I have a, a question related to the LPRC and then with – Someone like yourself with such a wide uh, range of responsibility and uh, the amount of time you have to spend on all the things that are going on, how and why do you get yourself and your team involved in the Loss Prevention Research Council working groups and projects? Yeah, well, look, that, it's probably a little selfish. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I really think it's critically important to ensure that we not only leverage science to help mold our strategies, but also to validate what we've been doing. And, and is what we're doing having the desired results? You know, there's good and bad with being in the industry for as long as I'm. The good news is, I guess I've seen a lot. Um, but the bad news is, I might be able, I might be wrong in my assessment. Um, and so, I, I believe our involvement with the LPRC, whether that's my assessment or what I believe the right thing to do or, or the impact it's having or anybody else's, um, the LPRC helps us to ensure that we're heading down the right path. You know, Tom, many of our strategies involve capital investment or investment in labor hours. And working with the LPRC, we can, we can ensure that when we are asking for additional resources, it's backed up by science, and you know, that's powerful in a couple different ways, I think. Uh, for me personally, when I know that we've tested, and it's rigorous, and we've, and we've leveraged the experts and, and the um, team at the Boston Research Council, uh, candidly gives me a little bit more swagger as I'm moving through my project, uh, um, reviewing that with my leadership team. And then... When it comes time to ask for those resources, um, the reality is it helps my leadership team know we've done our homework. And when you do that, you develop a level of trust and integrity that um, certainly helps speed things along on future projects. Um, so for me, 
um, involvement we have in the LPRC uh, is, is critical for, for those for a lot more reasons, but those are the two that come real, real quickly. Thank you. And I guess the next question is, and I think you kind of answered it, um, really was how do you incorporate the LPRC's concept and research into your work? And I think you, you really answered it in that. So I'll turn it over to Reed. Well, I think, thanks, Tom. And one uh, concept that uh, I've worked with uh, Tom on at Walmart recently, um, and really for a while now uh, in reality, and that is zone four. Uh, how do we better understand what's coming our way uh, uh, with sensors or some way of knowing uh, through people and so forth in zone four, the parking lot itself? And then, and then what are some options that we might have protective options for the people and the vehicles and uh, the, the you know the people being of course our customers and shoppers that are out there um, Tom can you can you talk for a minute on zone four and you've presented on zone four at, at uh, uh, overall NRF protect and reeler or whatever so you're you're an acknowledged expert in the field but can you talk a little bit about zone four parking lot and how do we uh, detect define and, and deter yeah, you know, I think a great example of of us not only using the framework that the LPRC has developed, um, but also getting some traction behind it. When I first saw the zones of influence read, um, I, I felt pretty good all the zones except for four. Uh, I think most retail practitioners today would probably say the same thing, that zones one through three, we do really good. Um, maybe even five, our involvement with the community is pretty good. But what are we doing in the parking lot? And I have this belief that says if you can, can control the parking lot, you have a better shot at going on with what's going on uh, in the store as well. And so you know, we've, we've worked together, Reed, on this see it, get it, fear model. And I see it play out in the parking lot um, as well as it does within the store as well. Um, the thing that comes to my mind and, and the technology we've deployed um, through what we've called a lot cop um, and or whether that's out a mobile device off a parking lot or a stationary device on our building, um, interesting to me is it's obvious that that's going to be very overt. Um, and it's by some of our um, results that it's pushing crime away. It's, it's not deterring crime. I think that person's just going somewhere else, but the reality is it's time away uh, from the Walmart parking lot. But to me, the even more exciting piece, and I wish I was smart enough to say I knew this was going to happen or I knew I, I knew this was part of the project overall. When you when you think about see it, get it, fear it um, from a defender's perspective, there's a, there's a flip side to that coin um, that I learned really just through watching as media would show up in our parking lot and want to do a story on these devices we were putting out there. And so, you know, I, I've kind of thought about it as our good customer has to see it, get it, and at the end of the day, appreciate what you're doing. Um, I see that play out over and over again. Um, every time media shows up in the parking lot, they'll pull some customers aside and say, hey, what do you think? They always say, look, understand it, they see it, they get it, they understand what we're trying to do. but but they don't fear it. Their, their comments are, and we, we're, we're grateful that Walmart's doing that. It makes us feel safer. In fact, remember we were out in front of one of our stores in Gainesville, 
talk to that customer that's parked right next to one of those devices. We understand it, understood what we were trying to do fully and parked your car there because we So as you think about zone four, you got to think about, in my mind, from both perspectives, both the vendor's perspective and your customer's perspective. And, and like you continually read is lots of friction for that offender and no friction for that customer. And really, that's easier said than done, um, but that balance has to take place or your, your strategy isn't going to be as good as, uh, as it can be. Yeah, zone four, we, we talk about, well, anyway, that the knee bone's connected to the hip bone, to the leg bone and the hip bone and so forth. So we really want to think three-dimensionally what's going on, what are think, people thinking, their perceptions, their movements, their behaviors, uh, as they come and go uh, and learn about our place. And so how do we get people to not, again, launch or progress um, before they get here or in the parking lot and establish that that real impression of control in the parking lot? This is a relatively safe and secure environment, um, particularly if they're looking for options out there to, to attack or to steal from. So uh, Zone 4 is just important, and, and you all are – just in our opinion here with our teams at UF and LPRC, acknowledged leaders, and really thinking, using the theory and the concepts, uh, and then helping us rigorously test different dosing options. How do we do this or that? We've now got some magnetic skins for our live viewer, LotCop, as, as you all term it, um, to get an idea. And we're getting ready to launch now. We've got it all ready. Um, then we're going to trial the Walmart blue versus the Walmart yellow versus the um, security package that we've got on ours versus the law enforcement or police package so that the appearances, the positioning, uh, the, and things like that that demonstrate some better intent and capability, uh, what's gonna, what options work best in what environments to help her feel safer and more secure and help the red guy that's coming there to attack or steal feel the opposite. So uh, good stuff. Um, I would say, Reed, that the – you know, we, we're pretty far down the path with uh, rolling out this technology. And, and my, my concern right now is, you know, after a while, things tend to blend into the scenery. And so how do you keep that thing alive, even though it has flashing lights and everything else? So, you know, we're continuing to add things like Walmart radio. So as a customer's walking in the parking lot, they're going to get this device being active and, and, and playing Walmart radio. Um, the the uh, deterrence piece on if somebody gets too close to it, it wakes up and says that hey, can you step away. Um, I think it's all really, really important so, um, so that we can keep the technology meaningful so that the offender knows that it's really being watched or it is working. The customer knows that, yeah, I feel better because you know, this, this device is active and, and, and working well. Yep. Excellent. Yep. We're trying to help them see, get, and and respond appropriately uh, on both sides of the equation. So um, more to come on that with that for everybody out there. I, I wanted to kind of quickly uh, switch um, direction and then go back over to my to my colleague, Tom Meehan. You know, Tom, let's talk a little bit about LPRC Innovate, the next retail center, but particularly the Innovation Simulation Lab. You're, you've been hand-chosen by, I think it was 30 colleagues, um, and you're one of what's called the core team, the planning team, to help us plan and execute LPRC Innovate. 
you know, can you tell us, take a minute to tell us what's LPRC Innovate, uh, what are we trying to do, and what's, what's your role um, as a retail AP advisor on that core team? Yeah, look, I'm really excited about this one, Reed, because I, I think it can be a game changer. I think it will be a game changer um, in, in thinking about how we can leverage technology in a way that helps us make better decisions. And so I, I think my role is pretty simple um, in, in maybe shape the future that we can learn by leveraging technology supported by the loss prevention research, research council using real science. Um, you know, I, I think we're just starting to untap the true potential of the relationship that the with the University of Florida. What I mean by that is not only tapping into technology that will help us learn, we can simulate using um, new technologies. Instead of setting up a whole store, getting into the lab, thinking through how to maybe set up a friend, and then putting that into practice right in the lab in a uh, like a virtual reality type setting. Um, I mean, that's that's just that's just mind blowing at this point, right? And, and I think, like I said, not only tapping into those technologies. At the same time, we're getting the front row seat to the university's best and, best and brightest in ways that, and, and they'll help us in ways that we haven't even figured out yet. So to me, this is very exciting. This new, the new addition of this working group um, and, and making it work within the LPRC is even more of a compelling business proposition for anybody that's thinking, should I, should I be part of the loss prevention? Council, is this something that can help my business? And if if, if you're already members and you haven't heard about Innovate, you need to dig in. Um, it's fairly new, um, so we're still uh, we're still learning along the way. But at, at the end of the day, leverage technologies to help us get to an answer faster. Um, and then how do we how do we tap into the best and brightest that UF has to offer um, in ways that who even knows yet? Um, it's, it's an interesting part about retailing today. We're on, we're on retailing's always been a high change, fast paced um, environment to work in. But I don't think we've seen anything yet how um, fast and how quickly things are going to change. And innovation to help us be able to make better decisions faster, understanding technologies and leveraging technology. I, I hope that makes sense for you, but that's kind of where my mind's at with innovation. Totally does, Tom, and we'll have a we'll have at least one and probably several uh, upcoming crime science episodes where we cover LPRC Innovate, um, and we're going to be helping, of course, on social media uh, and elsewhere. And, and the Impact Conference coming up in uh, that first week in October to run people through the lab, but to see what's going on already and what's going to be happening in that uh, ideation space. Um, we're going to be having a video wall, and it, it's going to be a pretty amazing place to come up with all kind of ideas. And the idea is to go from the possible to the practical, um, and then to take some of those what look to be practical ideas that have come out of that design thinking protocol or process, and, and go to the next space, to the ne through the next door there, and into that 
simulation space where it's immersive. You've got nine-foot screens on all sides. Uh, it, there's surround sound, sometimes even scent. Um, but you're in that parking lot. You're in that self-checkout area. You're in that receiving, that department, that whatever it might be. You're in that environment. Um, and it's you're not in the real place, but it's the idea is to make it the next best. Um, and the, the fancy scientific term, you know, Tom, is ecological validity. The closer that the participant in a research project, or in this case, in a design project, can be to the real environment, the better. And, and so by porting in simulated imagery in there and real imagery, high res, and then putting up options like you're talking about, leveraging that technology so that everybody can very rapidly explore, well, what if, what if, what if it looked like this? What if it was over here? What if we added this, took this away, moved that? Um, at much less cost than if we were going to start doing conducting demolition and moving things around in real stores, which is the next the next part um, in this innovation chain. So we really appreciate Tom, you uh, obviously Gary, uh, you all there at Walmart, they're on the team, and then we've got quite a few other chains, including you know Luxottica and the Home Depot, um, Verizon, uh, wireless stores, and so on several chains and then several solution partners and, and others, uh, innovation types that are out there helping us stand this up and refine it. Now it's pretty much stood up. Now we're refining. Um, so let me do this. Let me go over to Tom. Tom, I know you got some more insights and questions, if you will. Yeah, definitely. Thanks. For, uh, Tom, I know this is a loaded question, but what are some of the greatest challenges right now? Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what, um, you know, we, we could talk about specific challenges like we did earlier around shoplifting and prosecutors and all that. But to me, you know, connecting all the dots meeting, in a meaningful way, this is how I would say it. Um, so as I mentioned before, you know, the, the, the rate of change is unprecedented right now. Um, I've never seen anything like it. It's nothing new to anybody listening today. Anybody that's in retail knows. Um, change. And so it's about keeping up with the pace of change, but more importantly, getting out ahead of anticipating it. I think it's a major challenge. Um, no doubt, it's a very exciting time to, to work in retail, and, and it's really not for the faint of heart. Heck, just a few weeks ago, our business model didn't include Walmart associates walking into customers' homes, stocking their fridge. Um, so you, you have to be ready for to embrace that. Um, you have to make sure that your team is helping further the company's objectives, whatever they are. And that can be in higher in times like today where you're seeing unprecedented change. I think that was a great I think that was a great answer. And the next one is really related to people. And I mean how do you select and develop leaders for the future? Yeah, you know it's a great question and, and one of the things that I've noticed over, over my career is how important passion is. And I believe passion and willingness to learn sometimes trumps somebody that maybe has more of a pedigree, unless you're looking for maybe an accountant or something that has a very disciplined um, uh, process. Uh, I think if you're excited about what you do, um, not only does the associate really enjoy their role more, um, but it's more likely they're going to be uh, successful. So selection is critical. Experience is important. Um, 
having passion for what you do is equally important. I also look for, Tom, a track record of results. At the end of the day, there's two things that, that I would expect. Be a great leader, somebody that can drive uh, results uh, and drive results the right way. Um, that somebody, uh, that's somebody that has figured out how to drive success in their current role is likely to do the same in, in their new role. So um, having a for what you do, um, being an advocate for the team and, and for the objective, and knowing your role um, to make that objective uh, life are all critically important. And so, um, so those are some of the things that I look for initially um, when I look to select uh, look to select folks to, to be on my team. From a development standpoint, the second part of your question, Tom. Uh, I'm, I'm a big situational leader uh, uh, believer. Um, I think the best way to develop those that work for you um, is to leverage situational leadership. So if there's anybody listening today um, that hasn't read Ken Blanchard's book on situational leadership, um, I would suggest that you go and figure it out because the thing that was was it was like a light bulb that went off when I was introduced to it um, because we've all felt it we've all been on the other side and what I like about it is you know the, the development characteristics that Richard uh, outlines your D4 is kind of his model on the development side and so if you're brand new in the role and 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 the boss comes in and says hey this and you have no idea how to do it it's pretty frustrating or if you're a D4, which means you're an expert in what you do, and your boss is painting by numbers with you and telling you point by point, that's aggravating. Um, so in order for the person to develop, um, you have to know at what level I think to deviate. At what level they need help, at what level they just want you to leave them alone so they can, so they can do their stuff. And, and when you get, get that team figured out that way, and it leads to a high-performing team. I've been on a number of high-performing teams. There's no better feeling to be part of a high-performing team where the individuals know their role, they know their strengths and weaknesses, they know they're going to get supported at their level. Um, to, to me, if, if there's, there's one thing that I'd say, if you haven't heard of it, go take a look. Uh, and I've learned over my career what I've seen some people do this naturally. They go, ah, you know, I never, I never knew this, but uh, they do that naturally. Or, you know, reading up on situational leadership helps them be a better leader. Um, either way, it's a read and a quick read. Great, thank you. And, and my last question is also really related to people. What What's some advice that you'd have for some new asset protection practitioners? or folks that are just getting started uh, in a leadership role? Well, I think it depends on the role. Um, you know, working in, the, in a corporate environment, um, advice for a new leader or somebody coming up through AP um, would be to only say no when you really need to. Uh, when your business partners come to you, figure out a way say yes, you know, in my role today at Walmart, it's really easy for me to say no, because nobody has to put anybody in harm's way. Um, so I could, I could really easily say, no, nah, we don't want to do that because that's a safety concern. But 
But candidly, I think that's not only a lazy, lazy approach, um, I also think it's stifled innovation. So my advice would be to try and figure out a way to work to yes when ideas come your way. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, I don't know, probably 18 months or so ago, our business partners came to us. They wanted to test using a Segway up the front end. So, um, so you can imagine, uh, you, don't, you don't really have to major in safety to start to imagine all the things that can possibly go wrong when an associate is a Segway on a busy Saturday in a Walmart super center. Uh, and it would have been really easy. In fact, my gut was, no, we don't want to do that. And it would have been really easy for me to say, no, we don't want to do that. Um, but instead of saying no, we worked with the team to develop sound training and operating procedures and a test. And at the end of the day, uh, we didn't move forward with that particular thought or idea, but it wasn't because anybody got hurt. Or it wasn't because there was any naysayers. At the end of the day, we didn't move forward because our associates really didn't think it was necessary. Um, they had some fun with it. Um, but, you know, they elected to, to lead us away from that out any further to a couple story test. So, um, so, so I, I think decisions um, and, and work experiences uh, when you can when you can work cross functionally, uh, take advantage of all those key stakeholders and their experience, um, and only use no when you really need to. After trying to get to yes, afraid of yes. Um, I'm really lucky. I work with a whole lot of really really smart people, and I really love working here. Um, so the other thing I'd say is you don't have to know it all. You just need to go be able to go figure out who may have the knowledge and the uh, and with all the innovation going on in retail today, Tom, uh, we can get. Well, that we all your insights today, uh, Tom Arigi of Walmart fame, uh, a lot of good insights, um, a lot of field experience. But what's so important for us and our listeners is the concepts that you are learning constantly, like all of us as lifelong learners, uh, combined with your expertise, experience, and then just some good, strong, logical thinking, uh, but how you're putting all that in play, and you're doing it at such an incredible scale. There's just nobody else operating at that scale right now, um, and so it's very, very important. We appreciate your time uh, today, and uh, so what I'll do is, on behalf of uh, my counterpart, Tom Meehan, uh, Tom, we want to say thank you very much. And on behalf of our producer, Kevin Tran, thank you to all you that listen to Crime Science Podcast. We look forward to all your inputs, any insights, suggestions that you might have. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Crime Science Podcast presented by the Loss Prevention Research Council and sponsored by Bosch Security. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find more Crime Science episodes and valuable information at lpresearch.org. The content provided in the Crime Science Podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for legal, financial, or other advice. The views expressed by guests of the Crime Science Podcast are those of the authors and do not reflect the opinions or positions of the Ellis Prevention Research Council.